The Race of Patience. In your outline, you see three points there. Patience for a person. Patience for a purpose. And patience for a prosperous future. Um, This morning, what we looked at was we looked at um, the difficulties sometimes with with wealth, um, the, the risk of wealth. And we saw that actually most times we're tempted to store wealth. We looked at where we should be storing our riches and what we should be looking for um, as we look to the Lord with what he has given to us to be good stewards of it. We talked about how earthly treasures are temporary. They don't last long. They disappear. They can fade away. They rot, they disintegrate, they corrode, and eventually, actually, they're burnt up. And the warning to the unbelieving rich person is to weep and to howl. Why? Because judgment is coming. Misery, damnation is only the end of those who seek riches but really are not rich in Christ. Actually, they're found to be spiritually bankrupt at the coming of the Lord. And what stands against them, what evidence is actually what will convict them is even the things that they amass, what they gather together. In the courts of God, it, it stands for nothing, but actually it contributes to their judgment. But then we looked also at the stewardship of wealth and how some of these rich, unbelieving folks were gathering this wealth, but on the basis of treating others with with, with just, they, they were oppressing them. They defrauded them and didn't necessarily take care of them. They fattened their hearts in the day of slaughter. And in turn, they condemned others. And the Bible says in James that their cries, the cries of these marginalized people that were defrauded, was screaming loud to the Lord. To the Lord of the heavens, the Lord of hosts. And this warning was to the perpetrators that were doing these atrocities. But this evening we want to see things from the perspective of those who have suffered in the hands of these rich folks. And then we also want to look at how we as Christians should respond. How should we respond in any type of suffering? See, God will vindicate his children. But take care because he also judges his children. He judges us in Christ. But there is a responsibility on our part in how we live our lives. So if we look at the patience for a person. Let's read verse 7 to 8 again. It says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So James is speaking to brothers and sisters again. He's saying, patience, be patient. They've been suffering at the hands of these rich folks. The rich had dragged them through courts, defrauded them, used their influence to win court cases against these poor Christians. 
They defrauded them of their land, their wealth, their riches, their wages. Where is their value? Who will fight for them? What strength do they have left after losing it all? What will tomorrow bring? How will they survive? They've been trodden on. They've been abused. How will they look beyond their situation? Where is the joy in their suffering? They would have said to them, is this what Jesus, is this what following Jesus is about? The persecution they would have felt, you can only imagine. I wonder if you've asked yourself any of those questions. What situation are you facing that looks difficult? Or situation that you've gone through that looks very challenging? Why is this happening to me? What is happening here? What is God trying to do? See, patience, it's easy to say for us to be patient and wait on the Lord. But it's a fruit, we know it's a fruit of the Spirit of God, that he works in us. The Bible says love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. These are the fruit of the Spirit. What is patience, though? See, this, this word speaks of a, a long suffering. Suffering long, a prolonged restraint. Think of a, of a bomb with a long fuse. That's patience, to have a long fuse that actually never really gets to the bomb for the explosion. That's patience, waiting. The context here, when we read this particular Greek word for patience, it's speaking of patience with those that have caused us damage, adverse people. But it can also mean being slow to anger. We've seen this used in the Bible in other ways as well. See, the word patience in the original form connotes long-suffering, not just a passive position, but an attitude of self-restraint. Psalm 86, 14 to 15 says this, O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life. And they do not set you before them, but you, O Lord, are the God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger. God is patient, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. See, in the face of adversity, in the face of insolent men, the psalmist saying that he's comforted and encouraged in knowing God's goodness. And that because God himself is also patient towards him. That's the point. God is slow to anger. He knows that the Lord would help him because the Lord is slow to anger even with him. With all of us, the Lord is patient. And so we are, as Christians, are called also to be slow to anger, to be patient. But why do we suffer? What does suffering bring to us? Well, James says this. He says, wait patiently until the Lord's coming. Wait patiently until the Lord's coming. That's what it says in verse 7. 
But there's a further comfort in verse 8 that says, wait patiently, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. It's almost a double comfort. The Lord is coming, wait for him. But then he says, establish, fix your heart on Christ's return. Wait, because he's nearby. His return is soon to come. So beloved, in despair, in distress, in helplessness, it was requested of these Christians and us also to suffer waiting until the return of Christ. There's a certainty here that he will return. He's saying establish your hearts, set your heart on his return, anticipate his return, look for his return, hope for his return. And believe he will return. See, sandwiched between James' encouragement in verse 7 and 8 is this wonderful illustration. He says this, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. Farmers are... I went to Nigeria recently and I couldn't meet up with one of my uncles because he's a farmer. And he said it was sowing season. And so he was busy out in the fields, just tilling the ground. And when I started to prepare for this, and then I understood what he was doing. It's not that he didn't want to meet with us, but there's a sense that he, this was the moment, this was the season that he needed to do the sowing. See, it takes a disciplined person to be a farmer. It takes someone that is dedicated, the extreme effort in preparing the ground, sowing the seeds, understanding the seasons. See, nowadays there are many forms of technology that helps a farmer. I'm sure he was doing things very manual, you know, very organic. There's things that speed up this process of delivering goods and stuff to the supermarkets for us to consume. But the context here is the farming 101 guy. This is the basic level of farming. A farmer having prepared the ground, sows the seeds, waits for the early rain, and then waits for the late rain. The early rain begins sometime in October, that's, that's, that's the, 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 the nature within on the, uh, Israel's land. The early rain comes about October. It continues to rain during that time. But the first rain is to soften the ground. Soften the ground so that the farmer can go in and sow into the ground. But then it continues to rain. Continues to rain and the, the ground softens and the seeds that have been sown begin to germinate, begin to grow. But there's a later rain in March, April time, that ripens the fruit, ripens the, the, the plants and the grains, fattens them up, ready to be consumed. See, the farmer's focus is to obtain and receive the precious fruit of the earth. The blessing and the end reward, a valuable and costly reward. They've been working hard, waiting, sowing the seed, patiently waiting for that first bud to come through. 
external circumstances, sun, rain coming for that grain and plant to grow, that fruit to come to bear fruit. The farmer waits, he endures different climates with diligence, knowing there will be early rain and there will be a late rain. See, both are essential for precious fruit. See, without the early rain, there is no ground to sow. Just dry land, helpless, without form. Without the later rain, there is no ripening of the fruit. It never matures. Its benefits, its, the goodness is never revealed. Imagine just the early rain and no latter rain. There is no maturing of that fruit. It's a waste of time in between. But a Christian is like a farmer, waiting for the precious return of Jesus Christ. Are you waiting for that return? See, the reason you are Christian is because you're trusting in Christ. The world is dead to you. Your life is hidden in Christ. You're living for him. We want to live by faith alone, and indeed we do. But we also desire to live by sight. Now we live by faith, but there will come a time when you will live by sight because you will see the King of Kings himself. It will, he will reveal himself. A time is coming that the not yet will become tangible. You may be able to embrace our Lord. What is James saying here? What is the early rain to do with suffering and patience? What is the late rain? What does it have to do with suffering and patience? See, many, the Bible says that by many tribulations we will enter the kingdom of God. There were difficult moments for us as Christians. Acts 14, 22 says that. We will suffer and and our suffering is a part of the way in which we enter into the rest of Christ. We toil, we work hard. It's painful sometimes here on earth, but we enter into God's rest one day. There is no avoiding suffering for a Christian. The Bible says also in Matthew 11, 12, the kingdom of God suffers violence. But the violent take it by force. See, he's not referring to physical violence. There is no physical violence here, but rather a zeal and an eagerness to see and enter into the kingdom of God. That is that which is to come. See, indeed, when Jesus said these words in the context of John the Baptist, what he was saying is that the kingdom has already come, but there is a kingdom that is to come. Wait for this kingdom. Endure for this kingdom. Here lies the tapestry of the gospel, the word of God. So when you combine what Acts is saying, but many tribulations, we will enter the kingdom of God. When you combine what Matthew is saying, what Jesus just said, with what James is saying here in chapter 5. And the illustration it borrows from the Old Testament, what we see here, two things pertinent to the believer in the church. See, for a believer, the light of the gospel 
pierces our heart. That stony heart of sin. He pierces our heart and Jesus' work, his finished work on the cross, his forgiveness of our sins. Salvation that has reached out to us, the righteousness that he has clothed us in. The removal of the presence of sin, the guilt of sin, the power of sin. Saving us from the world and God's wrath. See, if indeed you are saved, you are being saved. But are you looking to that final salvation, that moment when Jesus will return? Suffering will come and the distraction will be to turn our attention away from Jesus. To wallow in that hardness of life. To shift our attention away from him. Nothing is towards our pain, our difficulty. And ultimately ourselves. But James challenges us here. As he has in chapter 1. He says, count it all joys, my brothers. When you face various trials. Multifaceted different kind of trials. See, yes, these Christians are facing the trial by the rich of this earth. earth. But they continue, and he's encouraging them to continue for their joy. Their joy, which is now, which is in Christ, and their joy to come, which is to gain Christ, to live as Christ to die is gain. See, nothing is more precious. Nothing is more glorious. Nothing is more desirable. Nothing is more satisfying. Nothing is more yielding of righteousness. Nothing is more secure. Nothing is more assured and more guaranteed than being in Christ. This precious fruit is Christ. He's saying that your reward is in him, is with him. Your hope in Christ, your hope in suffering is Christ. Your deliverer is Christ. Your help is Christ. Your strength is Christ. Your waiting is for Christ. And your eyes should be fixed and gazed upon Christ. Why? Because your faith, your trust is in Christ. It's all about him. See, Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. See, James reminds these dispersed Christians, Jewish Christians, that the early reign has come. The gospel of Christ has already come. The good news of Jesus has come. The good news that has come to rescue us from this sin-sick world that's cracked open our hearts and done a work in us to change us and give us a new heart. But he says, wait now for this late rain, this rain that's to come. Wait for that mustard seed that grows into the mightiest of trees. The kingdom of God is like that mustard seed and it has come. It's here, but the kingdom of God is coming. Wait for that maturing of the kingdom of God. Wait for that late rain, even in your suffering. See, James, in the same manner, is writing to you and me. He's saying, do not allow troubles, persecution, 
that you face to make you impatient. He's saying, establish your heart. This new heart that you have been given, establish it. Let it grow in Christ. Let it grow fond of Christ. Let it be rooted in the knowledge that soon and very soon we are going to see our King. We're going to meet him face to face. Be unmovable in trusting that Jesus will return. See, until then, let the winter months, the momentary trouble, those difficult times in between the early rain and the latter rain, let it be soaked in the perfect plan of Christ to make you like him so that you can be mature and perfect in Christ. Growing, the Bible says, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's what suffering does. Trust that God is working even when you can't see what he's doing. Even in those difficult times, you cannot see external factors, the rain, the wind, the frost. But something is happening. God is at work. He will bring about the late rain. That maturing will come. No matter what you may face, do it with the anticipation that our Lord will come. Come, Lord, come. Let that be what we say that encourages us. Come, Lord, come. Seek his return. We must remind ourselves of the message in chapter one, that when perseverance is fully developed, And that God, through many various kinds of trials, what he does, he works in us and through us a process of sanctification that perfects us through suffering, sicknesses, financial trouble, tough times, difficult moments. But notice that suffering itself produces patience. We are to be patient in suffering, but there is something about suffering that also produces a good fruit to wait on the Lord. It humbles us. It helps us to rely on God. Helps us to say, I have no strength and power of my own, but I trust in you. I will wait for you. God-enabled perseverance is the fruit of a Christian suffering. You can rejoice knowing that your suffering produces endurance that ultimately leads to hope in Christ. We know that our hope can't be cut short at all. Hope will not be disappointed. The problem is, we only know how patient we are until we face adversity, until we face suffering, until we face those difficult times. We sometimes feel we are patient until we're hit with a brick from nowhere. And that's a test, a test of our trust in Jesus. Are we trusting in Jesus? Are we living for ourselves or are we living for Christ? Are we hoping in Christ? Are we looking forward to his second coming? Jesus is the perfect and complete one. He will return. He has perfected our faith and thus only him allows us to press on. 
Like Paul says that he presses towards the upward call of God, entering into the joy of Christ. We have a hope of a future life with Christ. We are not complete here on earth. Our completeness is in the age to come. Good work, sanctification, to prune us and make us more like him here. Through pain, through challenges, through suffering. But what does this early and late reign signify for the Christian? For the church, rather. See, this letter, this, this letter is not only written to individuals, it's written to a body, to the people of Christ, to the body of Christ that have been dispersed. He's writing to the church of God. And though they were scattered, yet they must stand together in unity and as a community of Christ. The belief was this, that Jesus is coming back for his bride, the church. He's saying to them, stand together. Stand as one body in Christ, for he will return for you collectively, the body of Christ. He is the head of the body. He's saying, be patient and comfort one another. Encourage one another in Christ. The same comfort you've received in him, show to others, show to your brothers and sisters in Christ. He's saying, be patient with one another in the body of Christ. Notice there, do not grumble against one another, he says. Be patient as though you wait, waiting for that glorious return of the Lord for you as a body. He's saying, wait for more elders and deacons in the church. He's saying, wait, be patient for that gospel transformation in the life of the church. He's saying, wait, brothers and sisters, be patient for that gospel transformation in the life of your leaders. Be patient for the youth ministry. Be patient for what God has in plan. Those times of waiting, those times of difficulty, those times of not knowing what is happening, he's saying, be patient. That's the word to the church. So the posture of the church should be one of enduring difficult times, ridicule, enduring the world, what they say about us, what they say about Christ, opposition, strife in the church. Our posture should be endurance, patience. For what purpose? Knowing that Christ has redeemed his bride. He has paid the ultimate price. He's redeemed his bride, the church. He loves us with an everlasting love. And so we wait with a purpose. We look at verse 9 to 11. We are patient for a purpose. See, the temptation in the trials we face as Christians is we respond wrongly to suffering at the hands of others. Our attitude can be off. We are so, we're not so patient in persecution or working through hardship. We lose patience with God. We lose patience with each other. We lose patience with the situation itself. When we're treated unjustly, discouragement is never too far away. We question 
Why is this happening to me? Sometimes it causes us to stay away from church, to stay away from the gathering of God's people. It takes its toll on us emotionally, spiritually, physically, with our health. And we must have the right perspective. What is God doing in this situation? What good is God? What good does God want out of this situation? What does this situation teach me about God's character? How can I be praying through this? See, James reveals here how God is a God that just judges rightly. He judges justly. We must be patient to know that God judges justly. We often want vindication now. We want vindication now, but we're not ready to be patient. Why the Bible says that God himself is slow to anger. And, but just as the Lord is at hand to reward us, he has appointed a day also, a day of judgment. And that's why verse 10 says this, that the judge is standing at the door. He is near. He's about to enter. He's about to pronounce his judgment. And so we heed this word warning in verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. We will both, we will all face judgment in, with our attitude. No matter what difficulties and that we face, no matter what the challenge is, there will be testing times. But even how we respond in those times are important. Our attitudes, our words, our approach be judged the judge is at the door take care how you react so that you may not be judged watch the anger those evil thoughts the burning passions the short fuse wait patiently for your judge for his vindication but also you be responsible he said Be responsible for your response, even when you're wronged. See, the confidence of God's deliverance at Christ's second coming is joy. Joy here and now. We're to be patient with other believers. See, troubles may make us irritated and there's potential for strife sometimes. The hurt we experience may affect our relationship with others. That's why James is saying here, do not grumble with one another. But we are to grow in doing good, especially to the household of faith, aren't we? Grow in patience in turn to teach each other patience as we work together, as we grow as a body of Christ. When we experience disappointments, unjust treatment... Spirit of God helps us, if indeed we're followers of Christ, to communicate patience with one another, to witness patience to others in the household. See, they too benefit from what God is doing in our hearts. That's the point. When someone shows patience with someone else, the other person also receives a benefit because they see what God is doing in their life.
imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's what Paul says. And this is the point what James is saying also. He's helping us to see in verse 10 to 11. He says, as an example of the suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. So you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The prophets serve. The prophets serve as an example of suffering and patience to us. The story of Job teaches us this steadfastness in a period of suffering. What we should do. Note that James moves from saying patient, be patient. Now he's saying being steadfast. And we see this shift here. What he's saying is that shift, there's a shift here from suffering at the hands of adverse people to suffering in adverse circumstances. There are situations that we will face. So though he's trying to show us on one hand how we should respond in adverse situations, but he's saying this also applies in any form of suffering, in any form of adverse situation. Be steadfast, he says. He's saying that the sufferings in the circumstances the prophets and Job, Job faced, they witness to us. They show us that we also should face suffering. How? By being rooted in God. Trusting in God. We think of the prophets, Jeremiah. We think of us, Isaiah. And many that suffered for Christ. For God himself. But this example that he highlights here, he talks about Job. He says, to Job, and Job says this, when we read Job 19, 25 to 26, it says, for I know that my Redeemer lives. And that at the last, at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And, my, and after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. My Redeemer lives. That's what he was anchored in, to know that whatever would happen to him, whatever would suffer, he would suffer in the flesh, he would see his God. But we notice as well how Job was amongst his friends. Notice the patience of Job. There were many times his friends questioned, well, you must have done something. This is the reason why you're suffering. This is why you should turn against God. Look, you're not in the right place. This was right for God to do this to you. But Job was patient with them. Even at the very end of Job, you see Job asking for the Lord to be merciful to his friends. What's another purpose why we should be patient? James highlights here, patience for the compassion and mercy of God. So when you examine Job and what he had lost, his children, his wealth, everything that he had, the pain, the turmoil that he would have experienced, everything crashing down. Imagine just being in his shoes. What would your response be? How would you react? What would you say to God? 
Would you curse God like his wife said he should? Suffering is painful. Suffering is deep. It hurts. It cuts us. But our response is key. We don't see our suffering necessarily from God's vantage point. We only see it on our level. Our focus is ourselves. Suffering reveals something of God's character. The Bible says that he is with us, even in the valleys. Even when things are difficult, he is by by our side. And when we are going through deep waters, God doesn't often just pluck us out. He says that I am with you. I will walk with you. I am your salvation. I'm, I am your help. I, am, I will assist you in this. I will comfort you. You can depend on me. And he's promised that he will never, never forsake us. See, suffering, suffering is a gateway to experience God's compassion and mercy. And we see in the life of Job, Horizontally, James is speaking here of his steadfastness. But when we think about what God is doing, when we think and see, we have the opportunity to read about his life. It reveals to us God is fully compassionate. God is full of mercy. God never lets his people down. Whatever the situation looks like, however hopeless it looks like, God is always present. He will sustain you. He will give you the strength. He will equip you to continue to endure. God is so merciful to us, even when we grumble in those situations, those times we question what God is doing. He still displays to us his mercy, his loving kindness. Spurgeon says this, on on taking the survey of our whole life, we see that the kindness of God has run all through like a silver thread. When we survey our life, we will see God's handiwork each step of the way. One day we will fully understand what good purposes God is bringing out of our circumstances. And this leads us to our final point. This is why we must be patient for a prosperous future. What does this mean? Let's turn back with me to verse 11. We've looked at the patience we should have when Jesus returns. We should, we should wait until Jesus returns and the purpose of our patience. But let's draw our attention to the blessing of being patient. Verse 11 says this, Behold, we consider those blessed, those happy, who remain steadfast. We consider those blessed who remain steadfast. When we look at the life of Job again, this is the perfect example he's saying here. 
the sea of sorrow, the, the wave of torment, the challenges of life, yet you can still find the blessedness of Christ. How do we see that though? There's a fellowship that comes with knowing Christ. The Bible says that I may know him. The, the, the fellowship of his suffering. That's how we become more and more like Christ in how we react and how we look forward to his return. Actually, suffering is helping us as Christians to also to see, indeed, what Christ has done for us. It aligns us with him. There's nothing like suffering that makes us more complete. Why? Because it causes us to endure. James says this. And let steadfastness, this is chapter 1 verse 4, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's working towards Christ-likeness. But also a great reward awaits you in life. Chapter 1 verse 12 says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Why? For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. There's a fellowship in suffering. There's a reward for our suffering. And here is the the doctrine of perseverance. Here is the, the Bible telling us that those who endure to the end will be saved. The perseverance of Christians is the evidence of saving faith, faith gifted to us by God himself. And those that do not endure, those who who do not press on, actually prove that not trusting in Christ. Eternal life awaits you and I, brothers and sisters. If we remain steadfast, unmovable, Remember the context here. These rich folks were oppressing the poor, stealing their land, defrauding them. But there was no satisfaction for these rich folks. What does that show us? It's showing us that true happiness is not found in earthly riches or in comforts or in power, or in riches for, or even in suffering by itself. If there's no suffering for the sake of Christ, if there's no suffering in Christ, there is no worth to that. Why would you suffer for anything else? But there was a joy in knowing that for Christ, it's unto him, it's unto him alone. How can you have joy in difficulties and in affliction? Well, we can have enduring joy because Christ himself endured for us. The Bible says, for the joy that was set before him, Christ endured the cross. For our joy. In fact, we are his joy. And so we endure not out of our own strength, but actually in the knowledge that we are with Christ in this, and that he is with us in the situation, that he's conforming us, that he's changing our hearts each and every day, strengthening us, 
until we see him face to face. He will turn our mourning again into joy. Our tears now, that day, we'll be like, wow. We will forget the momentary troubles here on earth. And so we do not lose heart. Though this outer self is wasting away, the inner self is being renewed day by day. If indeed we are in Christ, eternal life is yours in Christ. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us, the Bible says, for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. A group that I listened to, Beautiful Eulogy, says this, that the destruction, the, the deconstruction that we face in troubles is painful, but the transformation is beautiful. Is beautiful. But you won't see that beauty now necessarily. You may see a glimpse of it, but God is working something, a precious gift in you. A precious reward that's to come in your suffering. See, if you do not know this man of sorrows, if you're not acquainted, if you've not acquainted yourself with his suffering for you, there is no amount of pleasure or riches that you will that will bring you happiness. There is no amount of suffering outside of Christ, outside of Christ, that will stand for you when you meet him, when you meet your maker. See, the race of patience begins with fixing our eyes on Jesus. Until we have a glimpse of his second coming and hoping and trusting and looking to him to know the purposes of God in every trial, to trust his plan and his promise. He said to Jeremiah, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. Jeremiah suffered. He also knew this hope that he had. The prophets of old, they looked forward to this coming. We have the privilege to have had the first rain. The second rain will come. Because why? The first rain came. So surely he is faithful. He is faithful to come back. In fact, Revelation says that he is faithful. His name will be faithful when he comes in glory. His name will be faithful with fire in his eyes. How do we fix our eyes upon Jesus in suffering? As I close, we shall be like farmers. We shall look for the return of Jesus. We shall establish our heart in scripture, in praying, in fellowship with the saints, in observing the Lord's Supper, a picture of what Christ has done, but also the marriage feast that is to come, the gathering of the saints from far and near, glorifying God, feasting with our King. That's how we wait. We read of the examples of the steadfastness of those that have gone before us. 
See what they went through, how they stood firm, how they showed steadfastness. And then thus, we will see truly that God is compassionate and that God is full of mercy. Amen.